0: welcome to the central community church podcast we exist to be authentic followers of jesus leading others to follow him by loving god loving people and serving our world hello everybody good morning here you guys awake Yeah. Okay. That's really good. I know that uh, probably what Pastor Tyson said, Pastor Chris is coming up. There was that little bit of like, oh, really? It's not Matt again? Like when is Matt coming back? Like it's three weeks, I think. So yeah, Nate Bursey joked around a couple weeks back that he was the uh, fifth string preacher. So I don't know. I'm like fourth string. I'm not sure where I'm at in that, but um, hopefully, hopefully Matt will come back soon. Actually, ju- to Matt's credit, can I just share something? Every time I preach, Matt, he sends me texts, and he says he's praying for me. And I, you can't see the text, but um, he says he's praying for me, and he's behind me, and I never text him. I never, ever text Matt. But he texts me, and he's, he's, he's just an awesome guy. He's very, very supportive of us uh, on our staff um I was thinking about this as I was coming on stage I was thinking about uh this this old preacher Charles Simeon maybe you've heard of Charles Simeon before uh he lived back in the late 18th century early 19th century kind of during the Napoleonic war era French revolution and he was an Anglican minister and he he was a pastor of a church for 54 years 54 just think about that same church he was there for 54 years um he has a pretty cool conversion story of how he came to know Jesus, and a few years later, like he didn't grow up in a Christian home or anything, a few years later, he gets ordained into the ministry, he's appointed to this church, and uh, they didn't want him, <laughs> but because they're Anglican and they appoint their ministers, they're basically stuck with this guy. They wanted this other guy named Mr. Hammond, they really liked him. And uh, they let their pastor know that they didn't uh, really want him to be their pastor. And for the first five years he was there, they didn't let him speak in the afternoon lecture. They had these lectures in Sunday afternoons, and they, they had some say over that, so they didn't let him speak at his own, uh, at his own church. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I was like, wow, my, this is pretty easy for me. At least, at least you guys aren't like that upset that you would do that kind of thing. Um, The other thing they would do is they um, he planned a a Sunday evening service and they ended up locking the doors so that nobody could come to the Sunday evening service because they had these church wardens back then and they had the power to lock the doors of the church. I guess Uh, the other thing they did is when he started to some new new attenders started coming to the church. People were coming to Christ and and they they would walk into Sunday morning service. The church folks got so upset that they. They locked their pew doors. They used to have these doors over their pews. And you had a seat in the church that was like your seat, right? And they would, lock, they would lock the doors. And all the church pews, nobody could sit in them. And so they brought in benches. And they tried to get all these people who were new to the church to sit. You know, And people are just sitting in the little nooks and crannies all over the place. Because the church folks, they don't want anybody there to come listen to this pastor. Because they just don't like him. What do you do with church folks, hey? We're a church folks, right? What do we do with ourselves, hey? Are we sometimes maybe not quite that extreme, but maybe we're a little bit like that? Uh, our story today in John 9 is going to talk to us church folks a little bit. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 9, and we're going to be starting in verse 13 together. Uh, And this is really part two of a story that Pastor Eldon brought us into uh, last week. And last week, Pastor Eldon talked about, uh, in the beginning of John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, we see that there was this man who was born blind, and Jesus heals him. And it's this incredible miracle the disciples, they at first, you know, were wondering if this man was blind because somebody sinned like his parents or he sinned. And Jesus says, no, there's no, no connection there. And then he heals this guy, but he heals him in a, a, a very particular way. He, he goes and gets some dirt and he spits in the dirt and he makes mud and he rubs it over the guy's eyes and then he tells him to go wash in this pool called the Pool of Siloam. And when he washes his eyes, he comes back and he can see. And Pastor Eldon walked us through that a bit. We learned a little bit about the fact that this wasn't just about physical healing for this guy. It was also about a spiritual healing, that his eyes were open physically, but he he also had his spiritual eyes open to who Jesus was. So we're going to continue on that story. But here's the thing, you know, if you were to read this story in like a children's Bible or, you know, if you hang around church folks long enough, most of us are probably familiar with this kind of story. But what about part two? Because what's interesting about this story is part two is actually much longer. The story doesn't really end at this point. But you know, us church folks, we like part one of a lot of stories. I'll give you an example. Uh, Jonah. Jonah's a great example of this. You know, most of us know the story of Jonah, right? Jonah, he he gets told to go to this city called Nineveh, and there's all these wicked people there, and Jonah doesn't want to go, so he just goes the opposite way, and he runs away from God, and then God sends a storm when he's on his boat, and he, you know, they throw him over into the sea, and then God sends this fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah gets swallowed, you know, and Three days he's in this belly of this fish and then he gets spit out on the beach and then God says, all right, now you're gonna go? So he goes, he preaches his message to all the Ninevites and they all repent and yay, God, you came through. I'm so sorry that I didn't listen to you the first time and God, you're so good. The end. Except that's not how the, that's not how the story of Jonah ends. The story of Jonah ends with Jonah walking away from the city and waiting he's wanting it to be destroyed. <laughs> and he's angry at God because God is so merciful. This is the funniest part of Jonah. God, I knew you were loving. Like, who gets mad at God for that? You are so merciful, God. And he's upset at God. And then the, God makes this little plant grow beside Jonah. And, and Jonah's so hot and he comes to rest under this plant and he starts to feel really good about this plant and he's like, oh, I love this plant. And then the plant dies because God sends a worm to kill it. And he's like, my plant, my plant is gone. It's my beloved plant. I wish I was dead. And that's how Jonah ends. That's, that's how the book ends. It's crazy. That's part two, Okay. Give me another example. Uh, the story of the prodigal son. We love this story in the church. It's a great story, right? Jesus told this parable, this story about a father who has these sons, and his younger son comes to him one day and says, Father, give me my money. I want out. Give me, he's asking for the inheritance money because he just wants out of the family. He doesn't care about his father, and so his father... Shouldn't give it to him, but he obliges his son. His son takes the money, runs away. You know, it's basically like he's he's dead and gone. And then he takes all that money and he just blows it, right? He just wastes all the money. And he finds himself so poor and so needy and hungry at one point that he's asking these farmers, can you give me some of the pig food? And he's so dejected. And then in this state of like, he finally comes to his senses and realizes like, what am I doing? I like my father is good. I should go back to him. Maybe I can just beg him to go work and, and maybe he'll let me have a job. And he goes back and, much to his surprise, the father is waiting for him, right? He's waiting for his son to return. He runs to his son, which, which Jewish men don't do in that day. He runs to his son and he showers him with kisses and love and throws a big party for him. And we're like, oh, isn't that good? And, and, and Jesus says, this is a story about the Father's love for us, who are sinful, right? And this is what it's like when someone turns back to God. He says, there's a big party in heaven, and all the angels are celebrating, and it's so awesome. And it's, it is. It's a beautiful story, right? But that's part one. Part two, the story doesn't end there. It actually ends with this other brother, this other son, who's out in the field, and he finds out what's going on. And he's like, a father threw a party for him? And then he's angry and the father has to come out to him and he's like, I'm not going to go to your party. He's like, you never threw me a party. And he's angry at the father. He's angry at God for his love, just like Jonah was, for letting his foolish brother back into the family. And that's how the story ends. In both these stories, we have a beautiful account of unworthy people turning to God in repentance, followed by the people of God, us, us types. The very people who should be excited about God's work of grace are angry with God. They're upset about the most trivial things. How is it possible That the people who are closest to God are actually just far away from Him. How's that possible? Well, it's possible if you're blind. Welcome to John chapter 9, verse 13. Let's get into it here. John chapter 9, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Now, mark that, right? How? How did he receive his sight? He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? Who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? How does he see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son. He was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So they duck it. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who was blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You were born in utter sin. You would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. Having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So, this is a fun one, hey? John chapter 9, verse 13 and following, we witness this conflict between someone who had been dramatically changed by Jesus and this group of religious folks. While we are anticipating the controversy in John 9 to surround the healing of a man born blind, we quickly come to realize that the religious folks are upset about something totally different. Much to our surprise, the Pharisees are primarily hung up on the fact that the man born blind claims to have been healed by Jesus, don't miss this, through the use of mud. That's their issue. They're less interested in the question of the miracle itself than they are that Jesus formed mud to do it. The whole interrogation hinges on this. The Pharisees reason, so here's their their reasoning, that either the the poor beggar is lying about being born blind. Okay, so that's one option. So either he's lying about actually being born blind, or he's lying about how Jesus did it, that he used mud to do it. So after they interrogate the parents, they safely rule out that he's lying about being born blind, right? The parents, they affirm, this is our son, he was born blind. So it leaves only one problem in their minds. He must be lying about how he was healed. The second time they interrogate the poor beggar, after the parents, look at verse 26 again. It says, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You notice that's what they're interested in. How? They're interested in the method because it was a Sabbath day. They said the man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. To the Pharisees, honoring the Sabbath day is of the utmost importance in their minds. The making of mud was considered uh, kneading, okay? And it was outlawed in their uh, Jewish Mishnah, which was uh, basically an interpretation, an application of Moses' law. There's 39 Sabbath laws of definitions of what work is, right that's that's what they have and so in that definition one of those 39 laws is that you can't need you can't need things that's work so the pharisees and the scribes developed this extra set of laws these additional teachings and they consider them to be as authoritative as moses law itself in fact they see no distinction between the two it's just moses law moses outlawed this now moses law is very clear uh, Exodus twenty three twelve. it says that the Sabbath is made for rest and refreshment. That's, that's its intention. But they've taken it and they've added all this stuff to it. That's not really part of God's word, but they think that it is. So when Jesus heals this man by using mud, which by the way, he does deliberately, because he wants this conflict to happen. He comes into a direct confrontation with the Pharisees. Actually, the man does. He sends the man into the conflict, which is interesting. And to them, the breaking in the Sabbath law is enough proof that Jesus cannot have come from God. And they, that's their presupposition, and they do not move from that viewpoint. So that's what the controversy is all about. Now, John is doing this pass, in this passage. Here's what he's doing, okay? He's showing us, and he says it very clearly at the end of the passage. That this blind man actually sees, and we see his vision get clearer throughout the story. And the seeing men, the Pharisees, are actually blind, and we see them get darker and darker throughout the story. That's what he's doing. So here's where, here's where we're gonna go with this, okay? We're gonna point out some signs that you might be, maybe, spiritually blind. And we're also gonna look at some signs that you have spiritual eyesight. So we're going to assess ourselves this morning, church. We're going to look at these signs. And I I want you to examine your heart as we go through this. So uh, let's look at blind sign number one. One sign that you may be spiritually blind is that you you are a, a, a victim of dogmatism. I shouldn't say a victim of. You have dogmatism. Let me explain that. So, you know you're blind when you can't question your own unscriptural ideas. That's how you know you're blind. You don't question them. We see this lots in situations where there's theological division in the church. You get these two parties, right? This is what happens with the Pharisees these two parties prop up, well, you know, and they're making counterpoints. But sometimes, often, one of the parties maybe doesn't actually examine their own presuppositions. What do you do when there's theological division? What do you do when something challenges your worldview, your view of the world? What you probably should do is look at Scripture, examine your heart, look at the evidence. You should pause, make sure, like, okay, I got this right. If something comes at you that shakes you a bit, you should examine those ideas again. Or you can be just dogmatic about it, right? When you're dogmatic, it means you don't question the premises of your ideas and you continue to pretend that they are facts based on insufficient evidence. So the evidence is pointing one way and you're just like, no. No. I'm right. I'm going to stand here. And you might even pretend that you've you got conviction, right? We're going to talk about what conviction is in a little bit. But it's really just dogmatics. If the Pharisees were to examine their understanding of Sabbath laws, they would quickly discover how much they were actually following man-made laws. They would also discover that some of their own claims were self-refuting. Notice that they confidently assert they, they know that Jesus is a sinner. They say that. And there's no way he can possibly be from God, but then in verse 29, they let it slip a bit, and they confess, "We don't know where he comes from." What you think about that? We know he's a sinner, but we don't know where he comes from. What? <laughs> do you do, do you see that? Do you see it? Do you see how blind you are there? Do you see that that's a blind spot? Verse 22, it says the Pharisees, when they're interrogating the parents, they had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Mind's made up. Their mind's made up. They don't need to be convinced. They're not going to go back and look at their their ideas. It's a great example of dogmatism. No effort is made to consider the scriptures or the evidence in front of them no questions are given to their own presuppositions. Their theological position is unquestioned. So look, brothers and sisters, when you, when you guys hear things, whether here at church or you read things in the Bible, during your personal study, whatever, do you, you know, when you come across those passages that challenge you, do you just kind of like go, no, no, like, you know, like a kid. My kids do this, right? Like, no, no, they just hide in the corner. No, don't want to hear it. Nah, 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 nah. Nah. It, like is that your reaction, or do you go back and look it up? In other words, uh, are you more like a Berean or are you like a Pharisee? Okay, I want to take you just to Acts 17 for a sec. Okay, if you want, you can flip there. Acts 17, verse 10 or verse 11 and 12. So in verse 10, it, it talks about Paul and Silas and they're missionaries and they go to the the city of Berea. They were just in Thessalonica some of the Jews there believe, some of them like beat them, toss them out. So they go over to Berea and it says when they get there, so they go into the synagogue. And so they're talking to Jews, right? So these are Jews and they're talking to them about how Jesus is the Messiah. And it says, now these Jews in Berea were, mo- were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. So they didn't just put up a wall. They, they were eager about it. They're like, yeah, you know, that's, that's interesting. We're going to look, though. We're going to go look. And they did. And they found it to be true and they believed. The Bereans tested the claims of Paul and Silas about Jesus' death and his resurrection, and they came to believe their testimony. And this reflects a humble attitude to look at all the evidence and to allow the truth to be the driving force. So, what are you like? Are you a Pharisee? Are you a Berean? Sign number two that you might be spiritually blind you missed the point. You missed the point. You know you're blind when you just miss the forest for the trees. Particularly when you miss the work of God right in front of your face in favor of some sort of minute thing. The Pharisees always win the contest when it comes to missing the point. That's what blindness does. A man born blind has just been healed and they, there, there's already all this evidence. There's all these eyewitnesses. Like, he's not even going around telling them, hey, look, I'm, I'm healed. Like, the neighbors actually see him, and they're like, wait, well, I recognize that guy. That guy was blind. And all the neighbors are stirred up, and he is saying, and his parents are affirming it, he, he has been healed. And you ought to, like, look into that, right? And the blind man puts it so great in verse 32. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Like, this is a game changer. This is a world-changing miracle. This never happened. It's amazing. And they're upset about mud. Like, what? Like, are you... This is one of those are-you-kidding-me moments, right? Are you kidding me? Seriously? Right? It's one of these moments. Is this, is this for real? They can't see God's amazing work right in front of their face. And brothers and sisters, look, we can, we can become like this, right? I, I know I can. I can fail to see the work that God is doing and the mission that he's called me to and the mission that he's called us to. We can fail to see his glory in the creation around us, to stand in awe of his majesty. We become focused on these little things, right? Right? Often our preferences, the things that, ah, oh, my coffee, they should serve better coffee at the church. Like, okay, great, like, it's okay, it's, it's maybe a good criticism, but was, like, that the first thing in your mind when you left the service? Like, was that the first thing? Was like, wow, like, God's good, yeah, we can maybe have better coffee, but God's so good. Or is it just like, man, what's up, like, oh, I do get it, like. My seat was taken again. Like, whatever it is for you, right? We don't sing enough hymns, like, I, I don't know. Whatever the little thing is, it's just like a first thing always in your mind. Like, when you're, when you're seeing God at work, there's this little nitpicky thing. Well, you might be blind. So check your heart. Number three, blind sign. Uh, you're a prideful know-it-all. You guys love know-it-alls, don't you? <laughs> They're great to work with. They're so fun to work with. Know-it-alls. I just love them. You know, you can't say anything because they, they know everything. And you know, we can be like that. You know you're blind when you're, private, uh, 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 when you're prideful know-it-all. They were full of pride, these Pharisees. They were know-it-alls. Notice how the Pharisees, they have this attitude of superiority all through the passage, okay? And they believe that they are the keepers of the knowledge. Look at verse 24. We know. This man is a sinner. We know. Unquestioned, we know. Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses. A little bit later, we are disciples of Moses. They start from a place of we know. They're prideful, they're know-it-alls. In the final moments of the story too, they smugly say to Jesus, right, when he suggests that they're blind. Verse 41, they say, oh, I guess, are we also blind, Jesus? Like, you can just imagine that they're kind of, they think this is funny, right? It's like, um, it's like coming up, it, it's like making a statement like, all NBA players are bad at basketball. And then LeBron James and Michael Jordan walk by, right? And they're like, oh, are we bad at basketball too? I guess. Like, <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous, I guess we're bad too, huh? We're blind? Like to call a Pharisee blind is to say they don't know God. It's to suggest they don't have knowledge of him. That they live in darkness. They don't have the truth. They're evil. They're wicked. It's an utterly insane idea to these guys. Jesus' response to them in verse 41 reveals that the problem of blindness is not insurmountable though. By no means. It's precisely blindness that Jesus came to remove, but the greater problem is that they claim to see. They claim to see. We know. We know everything. Isn't that a greater difficulty dealing with somebody who just just stubborn, right? I just we know. I mean my daughter the other day, like I'm trying to teach her how to cut her meat, right? So I'm like, hey, sweetie, like hold the, hold the fork this way and like hold the knife and, you know, she just fighting me like, I, I can do it. And she's like holding it like this, right? And like, she doesn't know what she's doing. And I'm like, honey, honey, just, just calm down. Just grab, I'm going to show you, okay? So that way that you know. Oh, I already know. <laughs> she's getting all upset. Like, Honey, honey, you don't, you don't know yet. I have to teach you so that you know. Okay, then you'll know, and then you can try. Uh, You know, and she finally kind of lets me do it. But it's hard dealing with that, right? It's hard dealing with your kids when they're just like, no, I know how to do it, Dad. You know, and then they go and just bail, right? And you're like, ah, that's what childhood's all about. You know, you just keep falling. Get you back up. The main point of this whole story is Jesus is, is using the blind beggar to remind us that we're all born blind. All of us are. We need Jesus in order to see, and as long as we admit our blindness, we'll receive sight. But if we claim to know everything, we'll remain blind. All right, so those are the signs of spiritual blindness. Those are a few. Let's switch over to uh, looking at the man who the blind beggar, and we'll look at um, three signs that you may have spiritual eyesight, or you you do have spiritual eyesight. Sign number one. You stand on your conversion. You stand on your conversion. In contrast to the Pharisees' prideful, confident assertions of their knowledge, the blind beggar begins with humility. He admits that he doesn't know before he says what he does know. So look at verse 24. For the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And he answered, uh, whether he's a sinner, I, I don't know. Uh, I can't speak to that. I, I don't know that part. Not honest? Humble honesty. He starts with what he doesn't know. He's humble. He doesn't pretend that he has all the answers. Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know about that but then he quickly moves to something he knows for sure, right? Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Like church, do you feel something when you hear that? Like do you feel something? I know. I know. This is what I know. I know that God has changed me. I was blind and now I see. I don't know all the answers, but look. I know that he's changed my heart. I know he's given me this new sight, this new affection for him, this new love for him. I don't look at sin the same way. Like I hate sin now. I st- like we still sin, but I-, I hate when I do it because I love God. I'm a new person. Like I was blind and now I see. That much I know. I know he's done something to me. Are you a changed person? Are you a changed person? Like you'd be in church your whole life. You could do all this stuff. Do you love Jesus? Has he changed you in your heart? Do you see him? Are you converted? I mean, I'm just, I'm amazed by what happens here. This man, this blind beggar, okay? He's just a beggar. He's never been to school, anything. These guys are really educated. He just schools them, right? Just schools them in this little debate. Here's what he says. Verse 29. They have no answer. He just schools them. And all they can say is, you're just a sinner. Get out of here. Which is what you do when you lose an argument. You just get mad, right? You just get mad. Get out of here. Can't stand your face anymore. Whatever. This uneducated beggar spots the holes in their argument. He even taunts them a little bit. And then he fires back for the legitimacy of Jesus being from God, their mouths are stopped. They have nothing left to do but revile him. Because he actually sees better than they do. Look, I'm all for education. I am. Like, please. I mean, sometimes it drives me crazy when preachers like talk about like how, you know, we look at stories like this sometimes and we're like, well, you know, the uneducated are better than the educated. You know, it's not about that. It's not about that. There's educated, there's uneducated, you know, and we need, we need it all. But you can be blind and educated. You can be blind and uneducated. It's about your heart. Where's your heart? Proverbs four eighteen says, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. And that's what this guy shows. There's a gleam there, right? They don't have a gleam yet, but he's got a gleam and he sees. And so he sees right through them. He sees right through them. It may sound contradictory, and yet it is true. I want you, I want you to hear what, what uh, James Boyce says about this. He says, Who are those who are most likely to be taken in by authority? We might answer the foolish. But who are the foolish? The answer to the question is not necessarily those who are uneducated, and most certainly not those who are aware of their own lack of knowledge. The answer is that those who are overly sure of what they think they know. Thus, you will find professors being swept up into foolish theories by other professors, ministers being led into nonsense concerning Christ by doctors of theology. It's true so true some of our christian bible colleges like some of the guys in there aren't converted i mean princeton university used to be a christian seminary right you speak christian not anymore what happened doctors of theology came well we don't actually believe there's miracles and they present all this apparent evidence while not questioning their own presuppositions Brothers and sisters, I have met children who see God clearer than some so-called Christian teachers I've met. I have. It's because conversion means something. It means your eyes are open. The light is on. Sign number three. You grow in conviction. You grow in conviction. That's how you know you have eyesight. Notice again through the passage, the blind beggar shows remarkable growth in his view of Jesus. He is strengthened by the conflict. He doesn't flounder, he's strengthened by it. I think that's why Jesus sent him into it. He knows he's going to stand, and he grows in his understanding of Christ throughout this passage. So look at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, Jesus is a man. So he starts there. The man Jesus, he says, healed me. Verse 17, they ask him, who do you say he is? His answer changes. Uh, He's a prophet. See some growth there? He's a prophet. Verse 33, he suggests he's definitely from God. And verse 37, he confesses that Jesus is Lord and he worships. So look, while Christians, we don't know everything, what we do, what we have come to know, we know truly. And we are convinced of it. As you go deeper with Jesus, you will experience greater conviction. Not dogma, but conviction. Having Christian conviction is different from being dogmatic. When you are dogmatic, you don't examine yourself ever. You don't examine your heart. You never question yourself. When you have Christian conviction... You may examine, you will question, but after examining and questioning, you will be strengthened by what you find when it's true, what you find is true, and you will continue to move forward in the knowledge of Christ. Let me just add a little bit of nuance to all of this, okay? So, it is possible to be a Christian, but to find yourself in a place where your growth has been so stunted that you feel blind, spiritually. And maybe some of you are there. You're like, oh, as you say all this stuff, like, I don't know, like, I sound like I am just blind. And it might be, but it could also be that you're just stunted in your growth. And you're kind of just, it's like, you know, it's possible to put the, you know, Jesus says we light a lamp and if you put a basket over it, you know, we're not seeing the light anymore, but the light's still there. It's possible that that's you. Here's what it says in 2 Peter 1. I love this passage, okay? This is helpful. Here's what what Peter says. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. You got faith. That's your baseline, right? You believe. Here, I want you to add some stuff, though, okay? Not to add to salvation, but I want you to add some stuff as you continue to grow as a Christian. He says, add to your faith virtue, And virtue, knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So he's talking about people in the church who, they're cleansed. They are real Christians, but something's just not growing, and so you don't feel it. You just don't feel like, oh, I don't know if I can see right now. And he's like, look, you... Because we got to address some of these other things that will help you grow, and then you'll you'll see you'll be effective, you'll be fruitful, and the light you will see it's on, it's really there. So look, it's possible to light a lamp and put it under a basket. Look, the light doesn't feel like it's on sometimes, but check your heart and see is it there? Check your life. Ask people to speak into your life. Is it there? Do you see it? Do you see fruit? And continue to grow. Maybe you've got to grow in your knowledge of God. Maybe that's where you've got to grow. Maybe you've got to grow in your character. Maybe you have to grow in your attitude toward others. And look, we'd love to pray with you over that if you need prayer. Sign number four. Sorry, I've got actually four signs. Or sign number, th- sorry, this is sign number three. Sign number three. I'm sorry. Sign number three. Last one that you have eyes, is that you see the real Christ. You see the real Christ. How do you know you have eyes, spiritual eyes? It's because you see Jesus for who he really is. God. That he's God. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered him, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And the word for worship there is not like, oh, he bowed, he just fell down on his knees. The Greek word means worship. He's not just pledging honor, he's worshiping him. Like if I had some Jehovah's Witness friends right now, I'd just say, look, he worships him as God. He's worshiping him. Look what Jesus is saying, He's God. To have spiritual sight means you adore Jesus, you worship him as your wondrous God. And when you read about Jesus in the Gospels, does he seem beautiful to you? Does he seem more glorious than anything else in your life? If not, ask him to open your eyes. Let me just end with this. When Jesus heard that this blind beggar had been cast out of the synagogue, I love what he does. He went and found him. It's no accident that the next chapter we're going to go into next week is about the good shepherd. That's what Jesus does. He seeks those who are his. He knows. Jesus is pursuing us. He's pursuing every one of us in this room. He loves us. He's calling us. He is seeking people to worship him. And we're going to learn more about that next week. So let's pray together. Uh, Lord, you know, Lord, you know how unworthy uh, I feel even to preach this sometimes. Lord, you know how blind I can be. God, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, for myself. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes more and more. May we be like this man, Lord, whose vision just gets clearer and clearer. God, help us to see you. Help us to see you at work. Help us to see you all around us in a child's smile, in the mountains around us, in your saving of a life. God, whatever it is, open our eyes to your work. May we stand in awe. May we worship you. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen.